The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks... Hey, 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 Jeff. Yeah? Now that the show's cleaned up, do we even need a disclaimer? What, you're trying to take out a third of the content I have for <laughs> .NET Rocks? I don't Fine. think we need a disclaimer. Rockheads, wrap up your extender provider and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blight. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 91 with guest Billy Hollis, recorded live Friday, November 26, 2004. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet, ASPNet, and C-Sharp classes. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASPNet web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine. Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's learning to pronounce Windows like Billy Hollis, Carl Franklin. Windows. That's how you got to pronounce it if you're from Tennessee, right? Windows. That's right. Windows. Now, you have to get a little further south from here to, to, to pronounce it that way. Say it. Say it. How you say it? Windows. No, no, no. You normally say Windows. I say Windows. Yes, Windows. All right. Well, before we talk to you, I want to bring on uh, my friend from Portland, Rory. How you doing, Rory Blythe? Oh, you know, um, I've uh, I have an upper respiratory tract infection. You know, oh, uh, that's special. It wouldn't be a normal .NET Rock show if there weren't something wrong with me. <laughs> so, uh. So last week I went blind, or was it the week before last week? And now I, I, I'm, I'm sick, so yeah, I'm sick. But I'm on the cold medication. I'm that kind that has the amphetamines um, to dry out your nose, and then the kind that has the, uh, the antihistamines to uh, put you to sleep. So wow. my brain is being tugged in two totally different directions, and uh, I'm feeling pretty good. Haven't eaten today, but um, I'm still digesting Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> from last night. On top of all um, that, you managed to crank out a blog post with about a thousand book titles on it. Where did you steal that from? Actually, um, a buddy of mine, okay, I had the uh, the best damn book you've ever read post, right? and there were a lot of comments in there, and a buddy of mine, George Klingerman, went in and compiled all of the books that he, that he found oh, in the comment section, okay. put those in an Excel spreadsheet, I took them out of the spreadsheet, turned them into some HTML, and then, okay. then posted that. Yeah, I did very little work for that. That was all George. Well, uh, uh, you, Rory, I don't know if I, you got my email this week. I haven't talked to you since last week you've been on the road, but I don't know if you got my email, but we since we have uh, started sort of, you know, going back to the old format of .NET Rocks, our downloads have spiked unbelievably. And really? I don't know if you know this, but just in November, and it's the 26th now at, as the time of this recording, we've had almost 200,000 downloads just in November. Oh, permission to say holy crap. Just for November. And mm-hmm. at the total number of downloads is only 700-something thousand. So, mm-hmm. you know, a good chunk of the downloads from 
you know, forever in the last two years have come from uh, this month. Oh, that's sweet. That's awesome. Isn't that weird? That is good news. Yeah, it's um, kind of The amphetamine half of me is like, wow. And then the antihistamine half of me is like, oh. So that's I nice. didn't mean to Jeff take away, you know, two thirds of Jeff's content on the show, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I figured, Hey, what the heck? We, we still do need a disclaimer and, you know, we'll probably put it back in for the real well, Yeah, Cause I said, Holy crap. Um, about three minutes ago, yeah. two minutes ago. That's true. And that could offend some people. Cause I said crap. Um, so. yeah, uh, it's true. And you don't want people to be offended. Of course, that'd be yeah. sick, sick, sick. Um, six, six, six. Yeah, we are. Uh, somebody just mentioned in the chat room, anything special in mind for the 100th DNR episode? The answer is yes. Is it the 100th? No, it's the 92nd. Oh. <laughs> I think this is okay. show 90, 92 or 91. Huh. Jeff, is it 92 or 91? Uh, One of those. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I said that it was show number 91. I think it's 91. <laughs> okay, good. There he got in his two-thirds now so he's uh he's made it up well um so i I, we haven't talked all week rory so you've been on the road you've been doing some stuff in washington i guess um i was i I actually went up to see my grandparents this week um just got back today um came back exclusively to record dot net rocks with you carl franklin cool um and special guest star billy hollis yeah and as always in the sound room jeff maciolik um (laughs) <laughs> uh, I even skipped out on going up to my cousin's ranch to hang out with the horses and the corgis. Well, thank you, man. Um, w- yeah, I, and I got home just in time. So wow, yeah, I'm psyched. But I have been busy. Um, been doing some work with my team, with the MSD and events team. I got to do some more coding this week, which was nice. You know, um, I'm enjoying the coding. What did so. you been? What you been coding? You tell me, and then I'll tell you what I've been coding because. I don't know. Well, okay, fine. I'll yeah. tell you. Um, and then Billy will come uh, and ruin it for both of us. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say this yet, but, you know, no publicity is bad publicity, right? So uh, for the MSTN content, for the MSTN events content stuff that we're doing for the next quarter, uh-huh. we're we're kind of doing a little experiment where we're uh, we're writing our own software for the demos and we want to create a story that kind of weaves in through all the different uh, modules of the presentation so that you don't just have like three or four totally disconnected presentations, but you have three or four presentations that are given on the uh, on different subject material, but that yeah. weave through the same demo uh-huh. so that uh, there's a sense of consistency. And, and you know, I mean, we we came up with this very spontaneously and very on the spot, and uh, we've kind of been paying the price for that, but we're still doing pretty well given the time frame and given, um, you know, how much work there really was to do for us to get this up to speed. Wow. This actually all happened during a content review meeting where we were supposed to be reviewing the content, and halfway through it, we just thought, oh, let's just rewrite it. So Wow. It, it's been nuts. That's but, fun. You know. It's cool. So what have you been coding? I've been coding a um, audio over IP program. And uh, it's, some, it's something that I tried doing in VB6 and it didn't really work very well. And, uh-huh. you know, .NET just has a, you know, superior platform and technology and everything. And I decided to give it another try. And uh, I had mentioned it on an earlier show, actually, that Jeff and I had been, he sort of helped me with, I'm using LAME, the LAME encoder, which stands for LAME ain't an MP3 encoder, which is kind of mm-hmm. silly and fun. But anyway, it's an open source MP3 encoder, and uh, you can use it with standard input and standard output. You can also call the static DLL libraries, but standard input and output is much easier. And uh, so that's what I do. So, you know, I basically wrote a component to record audio and spit out buffers in real time, and I send those buffers down to uh, standard input to the lame encoder, read standard output on another thread, 
and I get the encoded data. I send that over TCPIP. I get it on the other side of the socket, and I send it into standard input to LAME to decode it, pull it out into a nice big old wave buffer, and wrote another little component to, uh, to work with a queue where I can basically stuff buffers into a queue, and, um, and it plays them. And hmm. uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, Mark Miller and I were testing this between Los Angeles and Connecticut, and it worked pretty darn good. And before that, I was testing it between with Peter Blackburn in England because, you know, those mm-hmm. are the only guys that were up at 3 o'clock yeah. in the morning when I was finishing <laughs> right. this. And it worked pretty good. And then I got in here this evening after we did a sound check with Billy and turned it on. I said, hey, Jeff, come over here and look at this. Jeff stands in front of me, and it, and it doesn't work. And it's like, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I've only been in the presence of Brainiacs that were so powerful before that they could break your code just by standing over you <laughs> and watching you try to run it. But uh, anyway, I have no explanation for why it just stopped working, and it's the same code that worked last night. You know, the, you know those kinds of things. So. Yeah, I totally know that situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, well, let's just call it in alpha, alpha stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's sweet. you going to post the code? I, I'm going to try to get an MSDN article out of it, maybe an advanced basics column or something like that. Oh, okay. And this, there is an advanced basics column coming up uh, that I did um, talking about my MIDI component. So if people are interested in MIDI, and uh, mm-hmm. which I wrote a component to do MIDI in real time, and uh, it's kind of fun. So that's coming up in MSDN Magazine. What nice. else can we say, man? I think I think we're done. I think it's just time to bring on Billy and yeah. know, close this silliness. So my guest tonight, Rory's and my guest is Billy Hollis, and uh, we'll splice in the um, the bio du jour because it, you know, he's just, what can I say? He's Billy Hollis. I mean, he wrote he wrote the first book, he and Rocky Latka wrote the first book on VBNet ever, and uh, it was programming VBNet with a public beta. Since then, he's been doing a lot of work on the tablet PC and with smart clients in general, and uh, we had him on the show very, very early on in .NET Rocks history. And he was just talking about basic auto-deployment, you know, Windows Forms, uh, it's a good idea. And since then, we've had a lot of people come on the show and proselytize the val- the virtues of Windows Forms and smart clients, Tim Huckabee being one of them. But we really haven't gotten into the meat of it, you know, architecture, data access, uh, security, uh, webs- when web services. You know, we really haven't gotten into the meat of it. So I wanted to have Billy back. And sort of talk about the kinds of applications that he's developing. He's also a developer and contractor, and and uh, does some pretty cool projects. And uh, see if he can, you know, if we can learn from his uh, experience. So, without any further ado, it's Billy Hollis. How are you, man? I'm doing good. It's a nice weekend with a lot of a lot of interesting things going on. Cool. And you're down there in that Tennessee area in Nashville, right? Tennessee. That's right. Cool. Still there. You were there yeah. the last time you were on the show, too. That's right. I, 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 Nashville's been my home pretty much my whole life, except for going to school up in Knoxville. Uh, and, of course, I've just spent Thanksgiving with my family, so I'll probably sound even more Southern than I normally would, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> because they all live close around here. And Nashville's a great place to live, and, and there have been opportunities to go other places. I think somebody at Microsoft tries to hire me about once every four or five months. <laughs> and, and But, you know, I really like Nashville, and my, my family's here, and there are a lot of good reasons to stay. 
Last time I saw you uh, was at Dev Connections, and before that, it may have been at the uh, the uh, Tablet PC Summit or the thing that I can never remember the official title for the Tablet PC. Uh, I don't know that lab. it ever had an official title. Yeah, it did. It was like Dev Lab, Developer Lab. Well, I, I didn't something I, like that. I I'm don't know. as I'm as lost as you are. I just yeah. know that that it was a great event, and I went it up was. there and had a great time. And I saw you there, and um, you know, we were talking about. Now I know you're big into the the tablet and. And in the healthcare business, you're you're doing a lot of work in healthcare. That's right. Nashville, Tennessee, is not exactly the high tech capital of the world, but there is one industry segment where Nashville actually is the dominant location in the country for healthcare technology. Uh, it there was there's a company named Hospital Corporation of America that is I think still the largest um, healthcare non governmental healthcare organization in the world, or, or one of the top two or three, and it's been here for 30 or 40, I guess 30 years or so as its headquarters, and it's launched a lot of subsidiary organizations. People that work for HCA have gone and founded various companies, and then those companies have gone on to spawn more companies. And it's now reached the point where there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 companies in Nashville that are healthcare-related, technology-related. Mm. So there's a lot of work to be done here in the in the tech, technological area for healthcare. In fact, it's about 90% of what I do, 90, 95% of what I do is healthcare related. And are you doing any development on the tablet PC for, for projects, for customers? I'm doing some proof of concept things. And I think it's going to, healthcare is one of those industries like banking and there are a couple of others that are really subject to the herd mentality. Yeah. Is They're fairly risk averse about getting on the bandwagon for a new technology. But when the rush begins, it's like everybody does it at once. So the right. proof of concept stuff is, is going on now. But I saw my first tablet PC in a doctor's office just for a routine doctor's visit a few months ago. Wow. And that means that hmm. the, the, the first wave is beginning to break. The electronic medical records arena is going to, to fuel tablet adoption in the healthcare industry uh, pretty quickly, I think, over the next five years or so. I'm, I'm going to make a prediction here and say that five years from now, it will be a rare occurrence for you to walk into a doctor's office where the doctor isn't using some kind of tablet-like functionality. Yeah, hmm. that, that'd be very cool. Well, it's, there are enormous reasons to do that. There are a lot of techno, techno, technologies that are converging to make that feasible. There's the wireless, there's the, the, certainly the advanced tablet capabilities that uh, we've been seeing in the latest generation of tablets. There's also governmental initiatives to force healthcare organizations to move toward a more electronic form of record keeping, and that has the potential to save many, many lives. Paper-based systems are just not a good way to get the information into the hands of the healthcare professionals that need it. So this is this is a really good thing to see this technology adopted in healthcare, and I'm looking forward to, to being, uh, hopefully, at the forefront of that with a couple of organizations. I've done a, uh, I worked at a, a startup company that was doing some medical software, and we found that not just for us, but the market in general for medical software was very, very hard to crack. Uh, you know, the hospitals and and companies, they want to see, like, finished product before they decide, you know, and then it's like, mm, nah, you know, it's very, it, we found it very difficult. Uh, well, it's, it's understandable when you think about the mentality that's likely to dominate that industry. They have people's li- lives on the line. Right. And so that really drives them to a certain avoidance of risk, even if something looks better. Yeah. Even if by every objective measure they can find, 
it, it looks better. Yeah. If they put it in and people lose lives as a result, then the consequences for that are very, very grave, yeah, which makes them extremely reluctant to adopt new things. As I said, until other people start adopting it, you start to break in and you reach critical mass fairly quickly. Yeah. And I think the governmental initiatives are going to drive some of that. because HIPAA and, and so forth? Big, big pardon? You mean HIPAA and so forth? Well, HIPAA is one uh, of the, the more recent ones, but there are some state-level initiatives that are requiring healthcare providers to move to some form of electronic record keeping. Yeah. So when that comes to, to, uh, to be uh, sort of a standard part of the practices in the industry, when people start getting sued because they don't have electronic forms and, and they make mistakes because the information wasn't there, at that point, that will just force everybody to do it in a very, very short period of time. So what, what is this? Uh, can you talk about your proof of concept applications? Or is it basic uh, medical record stuff? Or? Yeah, I can't talk too much about that. It's electronic medical, medical records related. And the, the, the really interesting sticking point there is that every specialty needs something different. And I'm actually working with uh, a couple of organizations and talking to a third right now about doing EMR stuff for different specialties. Uh, there at this point has not proven to be uh, kind of a universal solution for electronic medical records because every specialty has specific needs about not just the information that it needs to gather, but specifically about how does it translate that information into all the insurance-related stuff to get their money. Yeah, and yeah. that actually turns out to be one of the powerful reasons for people to do it is it makes it much easier for them to get their money. Well, well here's here's a question you can answer. And this comes to my mind every time I think about tablet software in the medical space. Um, how do you deal with doctor handwriting? Well, now that, <laughs> that's, a, that's a challenge. There's no doubt about that. But uh, number one, you, you can't compare handwriting on the tablet PC to perfection because we don't have perfection today. I mean, there are a lot of cases where people can't read doctor's handwriting on paper. Right. So the, you know, saying that computers can't do it is, is not necessarily a, a complete bar because humans can't do it either. You turn it um, all into, into gesture recognition. That's right. right. So, <laughs> but actually, it turns out that because of the nature of the algorithms used for handwriting recognition, that in many cases, the handwriting recognition is better on the tablet PC than what a human could do because oh. hmm. the, the, ta- the algorithms are using stroke length or, or rather you know, stroke relationships to one another, changes of direction and pressure points and things like that to do handwriting recognition. That means that even if it's scribbled in such a way, the eye might not be able to tell what the doctor was going at. The algorithms may be able to tell. So hmm. it turns out that the algorithms are pretty good for fairly bad handwriting to a certain point where the recognition just drops off dramatically. And doctors, I think, are are going to have to learn to stay above that point. They don't have to Hmm. learn to have excellent handwriting. They just have to be good enough that they don't get to that drop-off point. Uh, And, yep, it's going to require a little bit of adoption on their part. And, yeah, that's really hard because Hmm. doctors are not easy users to get to adapt to, to technology. We were talking last week with Julie Lerman about the tablet, as a matter of fact, and uh, Roy made a good point about that, that, you know, the reason it isn't being adopted doesn't have much to do with the, with the unit itself. Like the Toshiba N200 is there. You know what I mean? And I've seen even better units that are coming online beyond yeah. that. So, yeah, it, it's the, not, the technology is there. It's not the technology that's, you know, no. people aren't looking at it and say, yeah, it's not quite good enough. I mean, it's good enough. Yeah, it's it's good enough. I wrote a, a proof of concept prescription pad application that translates 
um, doctor's instructions into you know the instructions that go on bottles and such and and it was uh it's pretty impressive to see that thing in action i carry it around to healthcare companies just to show and i intentionally when i when i write out one of these prescript uh, pseudo prescriptions really scribble it badly and the handwriting recognition gets there a large portion of the time but people in the industry haven't really realized that yet they don't really realize the state of the technology or the state of the software so they're not tuned into it yet Mm. Well, let's talk about uh, smart clients in general, smart client applications. Uh, obviously, this is your area of expertise, and uh, and I sort of wanted to get into some of the meat of it, starting from an architecture view. I mean, obviously, there isn't, you know, you don't think of smart client architecture as just one design and one set of patterns and whatnot. You know, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered first. And, you know, the first question is, do you need a smart client at all, right? That Yeah, that's certainly a... Uh a question that ought to be asked probably more often than it is. And the answer is not always yes, but I, th- I think we've reached the point in the industry where it certainly shouldn't be an automatic decision that people go, oh, gosh, you know, 500 desktops or 2,000 desktops, let's make that browser-based just because that's what people have done for the past four or five years. That shouldn't be an automatic decision. Now it should be a decision-making process. And there are a bunch of factors that, that you go through to try to decide that. And uh, I actually do a session uh, in some events organized by Microsoft's Patterns and Practices group where I do a complete session on smart client architecture. And that's one of the first things I cover is some of the questions that you ask yourself. Uh, and and I, you can almost do it flowchart-like in a sense. The yeah. first couple of questions that you ask are pretty much on or off. The first question you usually say is, do you control the user's operating environment? Right. I mean, if, if you're talking about an app that has to run on Macintosh or Linux or, you know, Windows back to the beginning of time, then you really don't have the control to implement a .NET-based solution. There it is. He said it again. Windows. <laughs> Windows. Windows. <laughs> I love that, man. You I love that. You just like the way that's said, huh? You know, I was, at a, I was doing a session at a, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, probably 15 years ago on some telecommunications technology. And for whatever reason, the audience was about three-quarters of women. And I finished, uh-huh. and the women said – just you know, keep talking about stuff. We don't have any questions. Just keep talking. We just love that southern accent, and we'll listen to anything you have to say. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. You know, we we almost have the same. We almost say it the same way up here, like in the Northeast. In Boston, wind is mm-hmm. only you know we're talking about the things on the side of your house. Good is storm. <laughs> well, storm wind is yeah. There's something in the Charles River that makes you unable right. to pronounce R's too, which. Yeah. I think that's <laughs> something to do with your pronunciation. Anyway, I'm sorry. I messed you up. Um, so that's, that's the first question. But if you get past that one, then there are some other interesting questions you can ask that might weigh things one way or the other. It, it, does, the, does the application need some kind of offline capability? Yeah. That's probably the one that drives you to smart client right away. Right, because if, you've got uh, if you're doing that in a web application, that's like what? An XML data island? Oh, or? It, there isn't any practical way to do it except right. in a very rudimentary fashion. Yeah, and, and a browser based. Yeah. I mean, you're almost to the point where you're installing IIS on these poor salesman's machines to make such an app work, and that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, so that's that's one thing that drives you heavily to smart client. But then some of the others are kind of suggestive one way or the other, but not definitive. Um, productivity gains is is one big area that I think people don't uh, pay as much attention to as yeah. they, as they should, uh, because in a typical application in which people use it a lot, a well-designed smart client application 
will typically give the user somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% or more productivity boost okay. over what a, what a browser can do. Because you just can't do some things in a browser right. very easily right. to make it productive for people. And or anybody who's ever, you know, painstakingly filled out a page in the browser and then hit that button and got the server busy thing and, you know, hit the back button and you go back and all your data's gone. <laughs> you know, that's, that sort of thing is, is just an example of the kind of stuff that, that makes browser-based stuff less productive. So, you know, if you say 10% productivity, let's suppose you got a thousand users, um, because I'm going to do this because the math is easy. You got a thousand users, 10% productivity <laughs> means you're saving a hundred people, hundred full-time equivalents a year. Right. Maybe your loaded cost for them is $50,000, you know, with salary and benefits and all the other expenses that go along with them. Yeah. Well, gosh, that's five million bucks a year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't, you don't have to be talking about a large app or very large productivity improvements before you get into very big bucks. And let's face it, it's a, be, it's a better app. I mean, it's better, easier, it's, it's you know more familiar. It's usually going to be easier to use and to navigate. Yeah, right? it's it's going to lower training costs typically. Yeah. Uh, I've seen cases where I've real apps I've worked on where the training uh, the training um, the amount of time required for training dropped dramatically as a result of a, of having a good well designed smart client app. And if you're doing commercial software packages, then certainly that lowers your support costs. So in addition to productivity gains, you also get other auxiliary cost benefits, and people should look at their own situation and see whether those matter. I mean, suppose you're saving 10% of the time of 10,000 people, but none of them work for you. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, that, that yeah. doesn't that – does, the cost equation doesn't really matter that right, much, right. but if they work for you, then it does. Right, let me ask you a couple of questions back-to-back. One of them is, have you ever developed an application and started out in, as an ASP.NET application and then wound up as a smart client, you know, turned around because it, something didn't work? And then the opposite of that, which is, have you ever gone down the road of developing a smart client for a customer, and then as it turns out, you know, that wasn't what they really needed. They needed an ASP.NET app. The last time that the second case occurred of a smart client, VB6-based at that time, uh, that needed to be browser-based instead was about four or five years ago uh, because that was back when people weren't tuned into doing browser-based for large numbers of people. And they just couldn't – there just wasn't any practical way to get the, the, the broad, broad deployment that they needed. Okay. But that's so been a long time since that's the case. I haven't run into a case yet in .NET yeah. where we started down the smart client route and it just didn't make sense and we switched to browser. Um, in the browser-based arena, switching to smart client – that's happened several times in the early parts of the decision-making. Um, people would want to see prototypes done both ways, and, and you show them, and, and you talk about the pros and cons, and they choose the smart client route because it, it makes a lot of sense in, in many cases where they weren't even thinking about that to start with. But the most, the, the clearest one I know of, and, and I didn't write it, but I'm involved kind of in the decision-making about what to do, is that yeah. one of those electronic medical records companies, uh, they, they are local, and they have spent the last five years or so doing what is probably the best browser-based EMR system that you it's as good as you could get. They've yeah. just done as much as they can to make that browser do great things. And here they're sitting now in 2004 ready to start really selling this thing. And now all of a sudden, we're looking at the whole EMR arena moving to tablet PC. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. now they're faced with having to change it out to smart client. That's a because if they don't, their competitors will, and they won't be able to sell this browser-based version. Because 
especially you we were talking about the doctors earlier, the doctors just aren't going to adapt their style that much to the quirks of a browser. You have to really make the interface as friendly as you can. Right. And so that's a big challenge for them. And I think that they've, while it was a good decision when they took it four or five years ago, there weren't any obvious alternatives. Looking mm-hmm. back on it, they've probably spent a lot of money that they're not going to get back. And so, yeah, the, the, the consequences of choosing the wrong one in particular situations can be pretty serious. Uh, let's get to architecture. And in particular, I want to ask you this question. I know Rory's going to laugh, but do you use data sets? <laughs> I do use data sets. Oh, See? Uh, I'm not going to laugh See? about that. No, 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 See? no. I have no problem with data sets. But, but Billy, Billy, do you expose data sets at the, at the end of web services? That's the big question. Do I expose data sets at the end of web services? Yeah. Well, sometimes. See? But we make sure that they're they're encrypted because we have to for HIPAA reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole data sets versus business objects or whatever discussion is a is a tough one. I mean, there are there are a lot of when I do architecture sessions and I get into that discussion, <laughs> the way I typically do it is to put two chairs in front of the audience, two empty chairs. Yeah. And I I have an argument with myself and I change chairs. <laughs> you know. <laughs> one guy in favor of one chair in favor of data sets, one in favor of business objects or other alternatives. Yeah. There are there are a lot of good good uh, arguments both ways. The things that usually carry the day for me, and the reason I end up using them quite a bit, is that I'm very very sensitive to the fact that I come in and write an application, and I leave, and somebody else has to take care of it. Yeah. And the typical VB6 oriented developer who doesn't really have the OO grasp that you'd like them to have. Um, is going to be a lot more productive with data sets, yeah. and they're going to understand what I've done a lot better. Yeah. And while they're not optimal, they're good enough for a broad range of capabilities. And so I tend to use them just because they're a nice lowest common denominator approach. Plus the fact that in many cases they're Microsoft's preferred approach, which yeah. makes them feasible for hopefully some things going forward that will prepare them for the future. So it's it's a it's a tough decision, but yes, we do typically use data sets as our primary container, but the architectural principles that I use to do smart clients don't depend upon any particular container. Yeah. So. Okay. And uh, now we were talking about binding earlier um, when I called you about the show and things we could talk about. Binding is something that you had sort of addressed in the last version of .NET one, you know, 1.0 by sort of rewriting. That's right. <laughs> that, that's, Tell us um, about that's, that. <laughs> well, that was, that's the beauty of .NET is, you know, you, you can do this wonderful component-based development and you can actually kind of just, you know, write your own stuff. To, and, and while I understand what they were trying to do with data binding and they were trying to make something that was pretty much all things to all people, yeah. for the typical routine business data-oriented application, at least in 1.0, I found it was, was just not the best alternative buy. I mean, there were several things about it that I felt like were less than optimal. Yeah. Um, it, it didn't handle nulls very well. The yeah. design time experience wasn't as good as I want. Yeah. Uh, in many cases, we found we had to turn it on and off. You know, you ha- you'd right. have to turn data binding off for a while to do some things to your UI and then turn it back on. Yeah. Or if you didn't, it would, it would like, do stuff that you didn't want it to do. Right. And then there were oddities if you had tabbed user interfaces. Data binding wouldn't update controls on hidden tabs until they were shown. Well, now yeah. suppose you're doing validation of something on a shown tab and a hidden tab. Yeah. That's, that's bad. Um, and then no dirty checking. It didn't have any 
checking to see when data was changed. Right. There were ways to get around that, but it took some work. Uh, if you wanted to roll it back out, roll, roll the changes back out, there was some manual work there. So basically, now I wrote... This is 1.0 you're talking about, though. That was 1.0. Yeah. They fixed some of those things yeah. in 1.1. Right. But in the 1.0 time frame, since I was doing the smart client stuff so early, I basically did write an entire replacement that fixed all of those problems from our point of view. Wow. So and, where, where does and, that thing live? Is it like a new binding context kind of thing? No. It, what it does is it, we, we don't make it event-driven. That's See, the big problem mm. with most – and I'm a big believer in many event-driven things. If you yeah. see my validator controls, they're heavily event-driven. Yep. But in this case, I didn't want it to be event-driven. You call methods on this object to do the binding from the data row to the controls or from the controls back to the data row. You have okay. complete control over when that happens. And that's completely appropriate because you know when to do it. Yeah. I mean, the user takes some action, and so you know when to do it. And and that solves a wide variety of problems. Does that introduce a lot more code, which is sort of the whole reason you use no, binding? No, actually, it, it, it's less code hmm. because the binding setup for, from the from the perspective of the programmer, is done with an extender provider. He yeah. specifies the data field that he wants to use. Now, aside from sounding dirty, what is an extender provider? <laughs> an extender provider, is, well, the, the best examples in, that people would be familiar with are the error provider and the tooltip control in Windows Forms. Yeah. That when you drag it onto a form, lo and behold, controls that were already there suddenly look like they got new properties yeah. in the property box. Yeah. In other words, these controls extend other controls by providing them with new properties. I see. Hence, we get extender provider. And they actually turn out not to be that hard to write. I've written a number of them. And the mm -hmm. one for data binding just lets you assign a data field to, to a control, and it figures that when, when it's time to do the data row, that that field's going to be there. And that's something that you wrote. Okay, so you, so you put it all together with an extender provider, essentially, and that's what... Uh is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. And then I wrote a lot of interesting stuff in there. For example, the dirty checking is very, very smart. Yeah. So that it, it, when, it, when, um, when you bind controls uh, using this extender provider, the, the component latches into events so that when data changes in any one of the controls and you go from a clean data row to a dirty data row, yeah. you get an event for that back in your form. Oh, cool. And then when it goes from dirty back to clean, let's say somebody put in a letter by accident and then hits a, hits a um, backspace, to, then it goes from, from dirty to clean, there's another event for that. So now, you know, if somebody wants to like turn buttons on and off when, yeah. when data is dirty or not, I, it's, a, it's a snap. Now, is that something that you make available? I, I make an early version of it available on my website. I've, I've done quite a few refinements to it, but I, I'm a little reluctant to continue to refine it and put it out there because data binding keeps getting better. Yeah. And certainly in Whidbey, in Visual yeah. Studio 2005 and, and Windows Forms 2, um, that a lot of my data binding problems are solved. And yeah. I'm going to give data binding another try, although I am extracting the dirty checking capability mm -hmm. because I still don't, don't think that that's as complete as it needs to be. And I'll probably just have a component that does nothing but dirty checking. Uh, I actually wrote a prototype of that a couple of weeks ago, and it worked out pretty well. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not advising people to necessarily go down the route of right. using my uh, my own version for, it, for data binding replacement. Although my partner, who is a great programmer, we keep talking about using data binding. He says, why? We got something that works. <laughs> it yeah, works great. Yeah. Uh, it is kind of interesting to to know that you can at least do it. I mean, you know, that's if you want to. You yeah, can. and and. 
if you know enough about the .NET technologies involved and how to do event-driven stuff and you know how to do component-based stuff, because this is an inheritance-based model mm-hmm. where you have this base object that knows how to do the generic things with a control, and then there's a subtype of it for each control that you want to handle. Um, it, if you know the right things, it, it didn't take me more than probably a week, week and a half of development to, to write my, the, my data binding replacement, and I've refined it over time. So yeah, it's it's amazing that you can even do that at all. Here's but, a, yeah. but I, do, I don't, so I don't recommend people go for that. But I do recommend that if they're doing serious data apps, that they go get my data validator controls, which are okay. also extender providers. Don't have to be used. They can be used with standard data binding, cool. and uh, they are pretty much production ready as they're presented on my website. And that's the most popular download off my site by, Very by cool. quite a bit. Very cool. Um. Rory, now I know that you're like a non-binding, non-data set, write everything from scratch <laughs> kind of guy. Um, what are, what's going through your mind as you're listening to Billy talk about this stuff? Well, I'm thinking, uh, okay, there's a side of me that, that comes out really strongly, um, you know, when, when we're talking about data sets and I start, I, I start talking smack about it and everything. But in the Windows Forms world, you know, data sets and data binding to me make a lot of sense, right? Um I only get really upset when I start thinking about web applications, when I start thinking about uh, web service applications, right, where mm. people are, are exposing data sets um, at, the, at the end of web services, right. and especially if there's any hope at any time ever of interrupting with anything else out there, right? right? As a way of cheating remoting, I don't really mind um, data sets over web services, but as a way of actually trying to create a set of services, it, it, it just doesn't work, um, right. in my opinion. But yeah, for, for what Billy's talking about, and, and just data binding in the Windows Forms world, yeah, I'm fine with that. And the idea of, you know, writing your own replacements, that actually all sounds pretty cool to me. But I, I don't do that much Windows Forms work myself right now. So. I was going to say, you know, what, what has been your experiences with data binding? Because mine have been similar to Billy's in that, you know, like binding a label control to a date. Oh, that's horrible. You know, yeah. that, that was one of the things I was like, well, okay, I get this horrible looking date. I actually had to override the paint event on a label control mm-hmm. and hook oh, it and reformat yeah. the date on the paint. <laughs> and that kind of code just is painful to write because you know that's not the way to do it, right? And, but, well, and you're not, you're not getting any kind of a reward for using data binding at that point. The one place that I've right. seen data binding that I have loved it out of the box is Longhorn yeah. or, or specifically Avalon. Have you guys looked at this stuff? The, the I haven't looked context? at Avalon yet, no. Planning on it. What I've seen of it is... Uh, fairly radical advance, and I'm I'm looking yeah. to, to I'm hopeful that that will solve a whole host of problems. Actually, yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah, it's good to hear that you're kind of in tune because I think you're right about the whole data set thing. I, I, for web apps, I don't see any particular role for data sets, and right. using them, as you said, to cheat remoting is is one of the is one of the ways that we tend to use it. In fact, one of the most important, if I had to point out two architectural concepts. People moving to smart client. Well, there's actually probably three, but <laughs> let's talk about two first. That people going to smart clients don't really key into right away. One is the whole area of data transport, and the idea there is that people go, okay, we're going to figure out a data transport, and that's just what we're going to use, and that's just fundamentally wrong. What you want to do is have a facade layer for all data, yeah, and then the facade layer may support actually more than one data transport means. Sure. And it might be runtime configurable so that guys inside the firewall are using remoting over TCP for good performance, but guys outside the firewall are using remoting over SOAP or web services with SOAP to, uh, uh, to, 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 their performance will slow down a bit, but it, you know, it's, it works fine. 
Yeah. So, um, and then of course we we're gonna we're gonna see changes to the data transport with Indigo going forward. So if you've got all that stuff in a nice thin facade layer, it's pretty easy to adapt to the technologies that are gonna come later. And you don't have these religious arguments about web services versus remoting and all that. So yeah. having a thin facade transport layer, Microsoft refers to it as a channel adapter, mm-hmm. is one of the key architectural concepts in, in doing uh, smart client development that people don't, I think, key into as quickly as they should. Another uh, key architectural concept is the idea of having a portal, basically, for your app or a shell, if you wish to call it that, that's the only entry point for your smart client. Right. Because that simplifies security and it simplifies deployment and it simplifies a whole host of things uh, by giving you a lot more control over your app. Uh, you know, you can if if that shell, if that portal knows about all the stuff you got loaded, all the forms you've got loaded. Now you don't run into that problem of what happens on shutdown, losing data, right. and things like that. You just make the the shell I always pretty call that intelligent. The application class. Yeah, you know, the top yeah. Level. So, so that's one of the the key things, and that's kind of tied up. That that application shell concept is tied up with with what I see people not doing very well, especially when they transition from web apps over to the smart client world, and that is they don't use state on the client enough because they've been conditioned. By five or six years, state's bad, state's bad, state's bad. No, on a client, state's good. You got lots of memory, use it to help the yeah. user. And there's no problem with state um, as long as you manage it appropriately and, and use it intelligently and you know save it when you shut down your app and things like that. State's a good thing for a smart client. It's part of what makes it smart. And uh, I think people moving from the web world tend not to, to realize how good state can be for, for making the app more usable. What? Uh, how much have you used remoting in smart client apps? How much are you using it now? It's it's been it's been our primary form of data transport because probably eighty percent of the stuff that we've written has been in, been for operation inside the corporate firewall, mm-hmm. and that makes sense if you think about the fact that early on, smart clients really were only feasible where people had complete control over the desktop. Yeah. As the .NET framework becomes more ubiquitous, it'll be a lot more practical to have broader-based smart clients. But early ones tended to be inside corporate uh, firewalls. So there, remoting just gives you the performance that you need. And yeah. and it was really the only good alternative for, for a lot of what we did. Uh, so it's probably 80-20 remoting web services for our apps. Two-way eventing in remoting? Hmm. No, we have not really tried to do that. We've pretty much, because uh, the performance has been very good, we've pretty much just gone with a synchronous remoting model. Okay. Uh, and 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 that has worked out well. We when we've done pure web services, that's when we tend to, to look at doing things asynchronous. Okay. And and uh, how about how about handling events over remoting? I know it's possible, like a singleton handling I, events. You know, it is possible, I guess. And we did develop a prototype, but it was just very messy. Yeah, I found the same. Same and experience. because we, we actually reached a situation when we needed that a lot, we had a workflow application where basically you had work areas, think of them as queues, where things built up. Yeah. And clients needed to know when a new item was added to the queue or one was taken away so they could refresh their screens. And that turned out to be um, a much more difficult problem to solve than it should have been. And, and that's one area, you know, I... I'm a huge, huge fan of Microsoft.net, and I think that Microsoft got so many things wrong. But that's one of the very small areas in which I think that for Java probably does things a little better now. They have a remote event model that I think is better yeah. than what .NET has. 
Have you, have you looked at uh, Indigo at all? I really haven't had the chance to look at Indigo, and I'm looking forward to it. There are some webcasts on it coming up. I always like asking people, you know, if you've had experience with stuff that doesn't exist yet. You know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I've looked at it. I've talked to people about it. Our good friend Yuval Loy is, is very right. high on it and yep. says, basically, if we'll just all convert to enterprise services now, then we'll all be ready for Indigo, we'll which probably has a certain amount of validity to it, but... Nevertheless, I'm not telling my clients to do it just, just for that right. um, because many a slip twitch the cup in the lip, so we don't really know what Indigo will look like until <laughs> it gets here. So I guess that would make it kind of hard to, to use observer patterns with remoting. Because yeah, it does. They, yeah. It really does. You, you can use re- observer patterns extensively on the client itself as long as everything's self-contained on the client. Yeah. But doing it system-wide, the observer pattern doesn't work well. Uh, so you really I've have figured to, out some yeah. fudges. Um, there's a product called, uh, what's it, what's IPX works that has, um, uh, an event thing based on a t- TCP listeners Yeah. that is a, a pretty good solution. If you just got to have that kind of a pattern spread out over a network, it, it works yeah. pretty well. Yeah. Uh, you could write your own TCP listener to do it too, but you know, I'm yeah. too lazy to do that. So yeah. Don't be a girly man, right? Sockets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Carl, Carl would probably do that. He'd probably write his own oh, definitely. For, for remote events. Definitely. I have, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's just say it. I know. Oh, well, anyway. I, you know, I know several people who are listening right now who are just shaking their heads in disgust. <laughs> several people who are listening who are lazier, yeah. uh, you know, like me. They're lazy. Well, and you know, much lazier than you, and would go, man. If there's somebody else out there who's done it, I'm gonna. I can hear Chris Sells, Roy, going, "Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I guess you you sort of have to take a you said a, a synchronous model to a, approach uh, for the most part. I mean, there are places where you do asynchronous stuff, um, message queue based stuff, for example. Yeah. If you're using message queue as an underlying thing, you can you can you can pretty easily implement an asynchronous pattern there. Right. Anytime you're you're using pure web services in the sense of you know you're going out and getting stuff and especially sort of decision support type apps where you might be firing off three or four queries to get stuff from four, three or four different sources to update your UI, then you really need to do a good asynchronous implementation there. Right. And it's not hard. No, no, you're um, just talking about making delegates and calling them right. asynchronously. I mean, it's it's the sort of thing that if you ever see it done once, that will work pretty much just like that for everything else you want to do. And uh, it's it's getting people over that hump, especially VB developers who just, you know, use the word delegate and they're they're, you know, you know, they get this this deer in the headlights kind of look. And and it really isn't that big a deal, but you have to see it done right the first time. But you know, it is the the way you do it is counterintuitive enough in in a sense to me that I always have to go back and get the code sample when I when I write one. <laughs> I can't just sit and write one. I'll always get it wrong and have to go back and get the sample. So you know if, if people have to do that, they shouldn't feel the least bit bad about it as far as I'm concerned. Rory just made a comment in the chat room that's got me chuckling. <laughs> How come you don't say these things on the show, man? You know, I because you know, I mean, I you know, some people might think I'm yeah, I don't know. Crazy. That's funny. Um, I was just commenting that I'm going to use SQL dependency as an application framework when it's <laughs> available, and that I'm going to wrap everything inside of SQL dependency, including ultimately and eventually when everybody comes around um, the operating system. <laughs> That's how much I'm going to use it. So I'm pretty excited. 
Yeah, I usually leave those things in the chat room, you know. But yeah, so <laughs> I'm great, sorry. Though. Continue. Got a little <laughs> sidetrack there. Continue. Ah, uh, I don't know, man. You haven't been the same since you started working for the man. <laughs> well, you got. I'm pretty dosed up on the cough medicine right now, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, um, what other what other kinds of uh, things can you tell us? I'm sort of well, I, out of I questions can, here. I, let's, I could talk about some of the more interesting things that have been um, that have that solved. So, Billy, what are some of the more problems? interesting things more that inter- I've solved? Well, you know, I, because you know, I'm lazy, as I said, and, and yeah. I like to do the, the interesting, challenging things. And we've kind of come up with a framework when we move into a, pro- a smart client project. We've got this thing that allows people to crank out that. You know, seventy, eighty percent of stuff that's just getting putting stuff in a database and getting it back. Yeah. They can just crank those things out, you know, you just snap their fingers practically and get it done. Right. Um, so that that kind of stuff now is routine for us, and that's a big barrier for other people to get over. But but that was a fun barrier for for me to leap a couple three years ago. But now you know you get into special situations where you're outside that norm, and that's where some of the some of the interesting fun stuff comes up. Um, user interfaces that are completely generated on the fly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the mm. HTML guys think that's that's easy, but you can do you can go even beyond what you can do with uh, with HTML with like dynamic questionnaires and things. And I, perhaps the most advanced thing so far I've done for smart client is have a situation where the 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 validation rules have to be dynamic. Mm. Cool. Okay. And and not only do they have to be dynamic, there's 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 not a closed set of them. It's wow. like, you know, you have to have some kind of scripty thing in the database to express the rule. Plug-in? Well, uh, there are various ways to do it, but here's what I found that worked pretty well. Okay. Um, the script in the database is kind of a VB-ish looking script with some placeholders. I take that script out, turn it into valid VB code with some string operations, use the code DOM oh. to compile that DB source code into wow. an, an in-memory assembly and link to that in-memory assembly oh, on the fly to gosh. provide the data validation in the smart client. Now, oh. that's pretty cool because you get compile time performance on rules that come right out of the database. That's very scary. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I had that reaction, but it's just very scary. I guess, you know, you've you got to have control over that database. You, you, know? you, you do. Uh, and, and the app is smart enough that if you put in a rule that's not any good, It'll give you kind of a little bit of a you know a compiler diagnostic screen that says, "Here's the place where you've made a mistake," and 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 I can't I can't implement this rule, so I'm just leaving it out. Yeah. Uh. So so yeah, but that that app has been in place now for about a year, close to a year. It's seven call centers, a couple thousand operators. Wow. And and it's it has yet to break. So. So they're really happens? happy with it because it enabled them to do some things on the fly that they were having to have programmers do I can't in the previous imagine, generation. I can't imagine debugging that code, right? You know, you, you write some code, you put it in the database, and everything blows up, and, ah, shit, you got to put it back in the database. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you I, I, I let them isolate it down to, to a point, and they can always just say, well, you know, this field has no rules. We'll get, the, we'll, we'll get things working here in a minute. But, uh, uh, yeah, you have to give them some... some uh, uh, some pretty good tools, but fortunately, yeah. only about one in fifty or sixty fields needs really complex validation. Yeah. That's when it gets messy. It's if this and that, but not that, and the count of this is greater than whatever. So you don't you you don't have a lot of faith, or maybe I'm reading in between the lines, but you're, you're obviously not using like a rules processing engine. You no, know? 
No. Because those can get big and out of hand, right? They can get messy. And, and it turned out not to be necessary because you can pretty much just create a uh, – you basically that in-memory assembly satisfies an interface for validation that I've imposed upon Well, it's perfect. It's, a great, it's great because yeah. you get exactly what you want. Yeah. You just, you just pass off the, the data to the validation thing and say, is this good or not? And, and it'll, it'll pass you back yeah. what's wrong or, or if it's okay, it'll tell you that. I like the I love the whole idea of of plugins that I first saw from uh, Dino Esposito, and then I sort of figured out a little you know took it from there and went off. But the whole idea of this architecture of plugins and it's similar to what you're doing in the database is that you watch a particular directory for a DLL, yeah, with the file system watcher, yeah, and when that uh, you know you make a you have a separate assembly that just contains an interface, yeah, for your plugins. And you have that in in uh, both a DLL. You include that interface and yeah. in your application. Yeah. And so when an assembly lands in there, you open it up and you load it with load assembly assembly right. dot load assembly or whatever it is. Load from file. Load, load from on the assembly. Load from. Line. Yep. Yeah. Load from. And then you you can check it get get a type object. Right. Right. And then you right. can check to see if it has the interface. Yeah. And if it does, you just instantiate it up and and call it. Yeah, you I cast it to that to that. You yeah, you cast it to the object, interface. Cast it to that type. Yeah. Right. Cast it to your plugin interface. And yeah. That is beautiful. And, yeah. Well, uh, that well, that, we use a similar technique in our application portal because all of the forms that plug into the portal have to satisfy an interface, and they're loaded dynamically on the fly. The the, the app portal doesn't is just generic, and what we feed to, what it does when it starts up is goes to the database and it says, you "Give me a data table of all the stuff that I should be allowed to load." And it, yeah. it includes where the assembly is and what type you're supposed to load out of the assembly. And then also some stuff about what security clearances do you need, what roles do you need in order to load this piece. Right, right. And so using that table, the uh, application portal will build a menu for the user, and it won't include the things that the user is not allowed to do. Yeah, that's And then sweet. dynamically load the stuff that, that it is. So basically, if you want to roll out a whole new piece to the app, you, you create that piece, compile it to a DLL, and put put the reference in the database and, and you're good to go. And that wouldn't work for uh um you know for your for your business logic? Well it it would, except for the fact you that you don't have as much control, obviously. Yeah. Um that that the in some cases the inter the very interface that is being used to to get the data is also dynamic. Which uh, means that, yeah, that sure. the dynamic rules fits very, very well with that. Sure. Yeah, of course you have to know how to call what you're <laughs> yeah, loading. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't even necessarily know what fields right. that I'm going to be calling. So, yeah. you mentioned security. You just brought up security. We really haven't talked about that at all. And the only reason I'm sort of hesitant to bring it up is because we sort of beat that topic to death in previous versions of uh, .NET Rocks, including your talk and just about everybody we talk about smart clients with brings up the security issue. But you know, hey, let's let's talk about security <laughs> again. It's been a while since we've talked about it anyway. Yeah. So what are the, you know, the obviously the hurdle Tim Huckabee was talking about, the hurdle number one that Tim Huckabee was talking about was getting the framework out to the client desktops. The second hurdle is authorizing your smart client applications so that they have full trust. And, or uh, not necessarily full trust, or the but right something, trust. something it needs to run your app. The right trust. Yeah. yeah. That they have permission. Yeah. They don't need full trust. Yes. So um, the way that I do it, and, and we were just talking, I was just talking with Kate Gregory about this. 
the way that I usually do it is if I if I don't have you know a specific need security trust need and I just want to give it full trust, I'll create a policy that looks at the um, strong name of the assembly and then trusts all assemblies with that strong name uh, and gives it full trust. And then you have that policy that you can distribute. Yeah. But uh, obviously that doesn't always work in every case because you're basically saying all or nothing. However, it is identified by that strong name. But you, even if it's identified, you don't always want to grant your applications full trust, right? Right, right. Um, I, my personal opinion is that give, given given where we are today with .NET 1.1, there is no ideal solution at all. And this is one of the areas that ClickOnce is specifically intended to address. Yep. And my advice to people for the most part is in doing distributed applications where they are having to worry about security is don't be ashamed to use a, cl- a kludge, basically, something that will just, just get, it, get it done for today because yeah. um, it, there isn't any ideal way to do it, and, and there will be an ideal way or close to ideal, a lot, more, a lot closer than what we have now when click once is put in place. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest, the, 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 the way that we have found that works pretty well for these corporate users that are, that are off on another machine across the Internet and need to, be, need to get their security policy set is that we send them an MSI <laughs> through, a, through an email you know, attachment or something. And that's a security uh, policy? Yeah, you can create. You can take your security policy and have it uh, put into an MSI. Yeah, right. The the the, um, the runtime security policy manager will do that. And they have to run as administrator in order to. run. That's right. They have yeah. to run an administrator at least to get the policy right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's that's uh, that's an issue, no doubt about it. But in fact, virtually everybody running out of the house is running it with administrator privileges. Yeah. So that just is isn't the bar that you think you'd like to think it is. I know that from a security. From an ideal security perspective, from the guys that worry about this and sit around, or sit around, you know, fretting about ways that people are exposing themselves, I, I realize that this is – they would just be aghast to hear me say that. Well, you know, but the you know, reality is sometimes shocking. That's right. The reality <laughs> is that, that it could be a lot worse. I mean, I can tell you, you know, horror stories of, uh, yeah. of, of at least one case where a company had the, – the first time they had a .NET remote app, they, they couldn't figure out how to make it work. Uh, because it just failed on security policy. Yeah. And so what they did was they went to the all-code uh, place and changed it from no trust to full trust uh, and then pushed that out to every desktop in the company. Uh, okay? Well, that worked. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't really realize the hole they were opening. And, yeah, there are reasons not to do stuff like that. Yeah. But what when you're talking about sending an MSI to a fairly small right. percentage of people yeah. um, that, that typically you know something about their environment – it's kludgy, but it works. Yeah, and, it works. Yeah, and and there are there are a lot of adaptations. I think at this point, where getting security policy out there is mostly a matter of what's pragmatic, what's right. practical. What about the trusted sites list? What about the trusted sites list? Have you ever um, bumped up the trust for trusted sites and allowed users to go just put the put your website in the trusted sites list? That seems no, like a quick I have, fix. Um, I have been more. Because that requires a change to policy too, so I, you know, I've always been more in the let's form a code group for, for the the, yeah. the particular group of code that I'm trying, whether it's from a given location or whatever. Um, I find that inside the firewall, it's not uncommon for people to want to run off of a shared network drive, and, yeah. and then you just you know say, well, anything from this server 
needs to have this this level of trust yeah. and push it out. Um, no, I haven't. I haven't done the. Uh, uh, I haven't done what you described. Well, you know, the reason I say is it works, and you know, somebody who can navigate around and you know, An you can sort explorer. of do it. Yeah, you yeah. could do it over the phone. You could like tell somebody yeah. how to do that over the phone and get them running. That that wouldn't. Yeah, that wouldn't be too bad a, a thing if you were gonna. Uh, yeah, do things over the phone. Right. As I said, since since pretty much we've committed ourselves in many cases like that to having the run run an MSI, we can yeah. pretty much put whatever policy in the MSI. Yeah, we that want. that actually is better. I like that. That's cool. How about uh, code access security? Does that play a big role in your life these hmm. days? Um. Well, that's pretty much. I know that's what we're talking about, but yeah. I oh, mean, and, in terms of in terms of specific permissions and having to write code. To, oh, to handle um, exceptions and you know it, it 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 is a little bit messy, but I've just done enough of it now that I can pretty much feel my way through and give the right privileges. Yeah. Um. I you know there, .NET two is better. It's better to figure. It's easier to figure out exactly what's going on, what privileges you're needing, and which ones you don't have, and things. But mm. I've almost sort of learned to feel my way through all the different kinds of privileges that there are that are relevant yeah. to me. Right. Right. Uh. I, which which is probably a subset of a third to. Forty uh, percent of of the privileges that are in there. Right. So, yeah, you you pretty much got to learn what all those little things on the security subset and on the UI subset mean. You need to know what all those mean. And uh, um, uh, there are probably a few other places where where you just have to to understand the implications of of switching things on and off. But I've pretty much gotten over that hump. Yeah. I, I'll be honest with you. When I start when I tell people to start talking about smart client apps, if they're doing it inside their their company. Yeah. And they're prepared to use some kind of deployment mechanism that will get the app onto the local machine. I, I just tell them, don't worry about code access security right now. Just get that app done and yeah. you know use the app updater component or something to get the app to the local machine, and yeah. then you don't have to worry about it. It's you know it's all full trust. Yeah, that's interesting. That's cool. I, I, I hate to do that, but let's face it. Look at the bars; they're already jumping. Right. Just to get to where they are, they got to understand. They got to switch in many cases from VB6 to VBNet. They got to learn the framework. They got to learn the new data access model. Yeah. Yeah. They got to learn, you know, Windows forms instead of the old VB forms. Um, they need to do more OO than they've ever done, you know, in, in their life. Yeah. Um, they're they're right. just making. They're they're leaping so many things already, and, and including all the architectural stuff I talked about before. That if I can just leave code access security off for a while, then I try to tell them just just don't worry about it. Just get your app. Working, it's and then when hear. you get, get ready to distribute it outside the company, then let's revisit that that subject. Then it's good to hear. You know, you have such a realistic um, sense about this stuff, and you know, and it's it's good for us to you know to listen to you and, and to to heed that wisdom because you know you're out there writing these applications, and and we're we're getting a sense of of you know what's yeah. what's prioritized. Oh, know. but some people are aghast because I was doing a panel at TechEd. This past uh, June, with uh, Rocky and I, were talking about the fact that not all the developers in the corporate world are ever going to become object-oriented developers, and that right. that's really okay. Yeah. That that they have domain expertise and they're valuable to the process, and you might as well not expect them to become OO developers because they're not going to. And um, Rocky was talking about a case where where one client not 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 being prepared to believe that. Um, wanted to make all the developers C-sharp instead of VB because it thought they thought it would make them better, more OO developers. And um, my, my response to that was, you know, that's 
that's like putting lipstick on the pig. It, you know, it just it doesn't really address what what you think is you're addressing there. Yeah. And there are people like Jeff Richter who was on that same panel that was just saying, "How can you say that? How can you say people shouldn't learn OO? You know, I wouldn't hire somebody that didn't didn't know OO." And I'm going, "Well, here's well the same that's guy. just the way the world works." Here's the same guy who said that C sharp is inherently faster than VBNet too. So. Oh well. <laughs> Well, okay. He's a brilliant guy, though. He is. He's a smart guy. And he works in the commercial software arena. And I said, if I worked in that arena and I was, I was hiring people, I probably would enforce that kind of, yeah. of uh, standards for my developers, too. But in the corporate world, you just right. can't afford to do that. So what do you think the prospects are for the future of VBNet? I know you're a VB programmer. And, uh, you know, in Widby. Yeah. You think, you think Widby is, uh, is going to deliver? deliver Widby the goods? is a step in the right direction. It, yeah. It, there are, there are still some steps that need to be taken. The future of VBNet is tied up with how well it allows typical developers to do data-oriented apps quickly and easily and reliably and distribute them over the Internet. If VBNet becomes a really good tool for that, it will survive and thrive and, and you know, well into the next decade and everything is going to be fine. If, if, but, but right now, I'll be very honest about this and say that right now, version 1.1, VB is too hard to do data-oriented apps. There's too much for people to learn. It does not fill that niche the way it should at this point in time. And that's just got to be fixed for VB to be to be viable long-term. Yeah. It's possible to do it now, but the barriers to do it and the, and the amount of expertise you need is just just, just too great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and you know, the, it's true that... While you know guys like you and I sort of found it easy to work with the data tools in in VBNet two thousand two and two thousand three, you know I've shown there's some stuff that I can't show to to my class right away. You know if we don't, for example, type data sets. Type data sets are so like three or four levels down from you know how the hell do I get my data in my form? Right. That, you know, just the very concept of what is that thing on that, what is that data set component doing on my form, you know, and where is, where does that fit? Blows yeah. people's minds. And, and I stay away from that in my classes. I, I go full coding to generic data sets when I'm doing data, data set centric stuff. And, uh, and I give them a little demo afterwards. And I say, you know, here's some of the things it can do. But if you don't understand what data sets are, you know, how are you going to understand the magic that, you know, and the magic isn't all that intuitive either. So, I, you know, I've looked at Widby, of course, been playing with it quite a bit. And I really, lo- really, really like the story for, you know, the the access programmer who just wants to drag and drop and there's a form and press the button and, you know, get the code and get the data and then yeah. edit and change it and save it. Hell, even ASP.NET is miles ahead of ASP.NET 1.1. Espina 2.0 in that regard, just, you know, dragging and dropping a table onto a web form, setting yeah. a few properties, and you can edit data. Well, I completely agree. Yeah. And, and it's, it is a lot years ahead, and, 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 and I don't want to, this to, to, to be sort of emphasizing the negative, but I went through the whole process of doing data apps with, uh, with 2005, yeah. and it's like, 80% of the process has been like cleaned up and, and pretty much automatic, and the system is smart enough to just do it. And then there's still a couple of barriers right. that I had to kind of, you know, figure my way around right. to make it do what it needed to do that the average developer is really, really going to struggle with because they don't know sort of how .NET thinks, so yeah. to speak. 
Now, do you think, is that architectural or is that just buggy or? Oh, I think it's a case of if you're going to write something that's all things to all people, that you're just going to have a couple of places like that. Yeah. That if, if you in order to get around those kinds of things, you're going to be imposing certain patterns on people that, that some people aren't going to like. That would work for, you know, 70% or whatever of the people out there. But the other people would be upset that you forced them into that pattern. Yeah. Um, I really think that there's room in, in the whole .NET ecosystem for something that, that fills in the gap below DBNet. And I don't know if it's something that would run on top of DBNet and just kind of control the process or a brand new product. But, you know, there's a lot of good ideas from things like Power Builder and Fox Pro and, and old uh, systems like Clarion, if you were yeah. familiar with that from the DOS days, there are a lot of great ideas for how you help people, and and of course Access itself. There are right. a lot of great ideas for how you would help people do routine apps that I think are not being um, are not being taken advantage of the way I'd like to see them. Because as nice as it is for me, and .NET is the most ideal programming environment I've ever worked in. Yeah. It helps me do the things I need to do better and faster by by just an order of magnitude than anything else I've ever used. Be that as it may, I recognize that there are a lot of people out there for which it is not an ideal solution. Yeah. Not from a programming perspective. As a platform to build on long term, I mean, it's just it's the it's, it's the best thing Microsoft has ever ever done. Yep. But yeah, there are there's still evolution of the tools. What about office programming? You think that's as going to catch on as as what as much as I think it should? <laughs> Let's put it that way. Well, you know, I, if you're talking about InfoPath in particular. Um, the problem I see with InfoPath is it's a neither fish nor fowl type thing. Um, it's it's kind of between what you can do with a browser and what you can do with Windows Forms. Mm-hmm. And traditionally in the industry, those kinds of of neither fish nor fowl solutions don't do well because people tend to go more to the extremes. They they, they yeah. go to the flexibility and broad distribution of browser based, uh, or they go to the to the very um, uh, you know high high end very fancy capabilities of a Windows Forms. Um, and, of course, the restriction that everybody's got to have Office means that you're right. pretty much talking just about corporate apps yeah. for that to be the case. And you're talking about corporate apps that have a, a, a not too high a bar on the data that they're going to manage. But for, yeah, for some very routine kinds of simple fill-in-the-form kind of things, um, the Office the office solution is a good one. How about for, you know, uh, the, I guess maybe it's a misnomer or that, uh, that, that it's easier to write a Visual Studio tools for Office application like behind a Word document or an Excel spreadsheet than it would be just to write a Windows app in VBNet because <clears throat> you're still using VBNet. You're still writing the same code for, you know, accessing yeah. data and for, for doing everything else. It's just that your UI is more familiar. But in some cases, you know, like for me, it's totally foreign because I don't, well, it's just because the object models. Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't understand the object model or word in Excel. And actually, if you learn those object models and what you can do with them, there are there is a broad class of solutions for which there, you can do really amazing things. I mean, let's, let's just take one off off the top of my head that I worked on, which was uh, okay. You got salesmen that need to go out and present these PowerPoint applications to users, but because of the nature of this, what they're selling. What they're going to try to sell to somebody is going to vary There's in some combination of products that they're going to do. And, of course, they want to personalize the whole presentation to the particular people they're talking about. Well, 
the ability to put up a screen and says, okay, who's you know, what's the name of the person? What's the name of the company? Yeah. Check off the things that you want included in the in the app, and then press a button and get a customized PowerPoint. Yeah. Now that's a powerful thing. I mean, you're right. talking about hours of salesman's time every week for a large staff that that could be saved. Yeah. Uh, and and really increase a company's ability to sell. So that's just an example of something that you can do inside the app that, that for as I said, for certain classes of problems, uh, being able to program inside the, the office uh, products is, is really a powerful thing. Yeah, cool. What are, what are some, last question, what are some of the tools that you use, if you use any? Programming tools, uh, developer controls, uh, companies that you want to, you know, uh, yeah. talk about or not I, talk about? I try to keep that to a minimum because, you know, I go from place to place and I don't want to have to bring in a, a large set of dependencies. Yeah. But um, I mentioned the fact that, that the IPX works stuff is pretty good. Mm-hmm. I'd use that. But well, the, one, the one thing that you, ha- you just have to do if you're going to go into uh, a serious development environment right now is you've got to have a grid. Yeah, because the grid that's built in just isn't going to do it. Blows, <laughs> blows. Uh, <laughs> Excuse me, sorry, I had something in my throat. I... That's right. It's okay. Sucks. So, so oh, there's sorry. there are there are several yeah. good possibilities to choose from there. Uh, the folks from Component One and from make make a good one. Infragistics makes a good one. Yeah. And uh, I'm also very fond of the one from Janus. Yeah. The Janus grid is very very good, uh, and that's the one I, I tend to use most often. It's mm. it's very very fast. Uh, its only drawback is that the documentation for it is is pretty pretty lame lacking yeah and all these companies really don't have great support do they um actually it varies the janus support has been pretty good yeah um and and you know the whole deployment thing is not a problem anymore right i just just don't like to depend on too many things another thing that um that i've been using recently is vault for source control Uh which is you know, we chose that just before all the team systems announcements. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> that Microsoft is actually gonna gonna do something about source safe. But I had just gotten to the point where I wasn't prepared to put up with source safe anymore. Yeah. And Vault is a good product. Yeah. Okay. So I do recommend that. Um and yeah, I guess that that's the that's the major ones. Oh, um Final Builder is mm-hmm. uh is a good product for managing the build process. Mm-hmm. And everybody should have uh a good build process. You know, when I go into these clients I think they they think they're buying .NET expertise, and and they are. But a large portion of the time, eighty percent plus, what they're also buying is expertise on how a software development process works. Yeah. It's surprising how many people don't know that. Mm-hmm. They don't understand the the realities of a build process or doing product drops or anything like that. Right. And so, uh, a tool like Final Builder Pro is is valuable for for getting them on the right path. Uh, any places that you're going to be speaking soon or? Or, Man, next year is filling up. There's not anything between now and the end of the year, but right. uh, I'll be down in Jamaica doing <laughs> some sessions in January. Wow. I'll be at at SD West in uh, uh-huh. March, and I'll be at VS Live. I think that's late February. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, there's also a uh, the Architecture Summit sponsored by the Patterns and Practices Group. That's in uh-huh. March also. Well, I says I'm I'm going to be in Jamaica, man. <laughs> That's the way you have to say that. Uh, so yeah, next year's next year's filling up quite quite often. I've I've reached the point where I have to turn down invitations to speak because yeah. there are, there are there, there, there the number of conferences is kind of multiplying and coming back now. Yeah. And um, I have real work here to do at home. Yeah. So. How did you like speaking at Dev Connections? Dev Connections was nice uh, because I, I was 
I was pleasantly surprised. A year ago in Palm Springs when I spoke there, yeah. the whole arena of smart client windows forms, nobody cared. Yeah. Very small audiences. This year, the audiences were three times yep. bigger for my stuff, yeah. and it worked out very well. I also went there because my wife loves Las Vegas. Yeah, and, it was great. And it's a great place to go and have a good vacation. It was her birthday weekend as well, so there were a lot of good reasons to go to, to VS Connections. But, the, they, you know, it's a well-organized conference. They do such a good job organizing yeah. it. And they, they treat the speakers well, too, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do. Yep. I, you know, but most, most of the places do now. I've, yeah. I've, been, uh, I've been pretty much pleasantly surprised by all the people I've worked with. That's cool. Well, listen, man, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure catching up with you again. And, uh, God, I want to talk to you some more, but we're out of time. What can I say? Well, I've enjoyed it. Good. I guess we'll, uh, we'll see you next year sometime. And this is Carl Franklin saying goodnight from myself, Rory Blythe in Portland, Jeff Maciolik out in the sound room, and Billy Hollis. Goodnight. Good night.